Well, as I said last week, I am enjoying and I am excited about studying the book of Esther. Last week, I had hoped to get through two chapters. We got through one. So last night, I told Cindy, I said, honey, I'm hoping to get through four chapters today. She reminded me that last week we got through one. So we'll see what happens today. I hope that you're reading your Bibles and studying the book of Esther. You know, I almost today didn't put all the scriptures on the slides because I want to encourage you. There's, I know we got them on our phones and we got them on our iPads. I know, but there's something about holding that book in your hands and turning real pages that an old guy like me thinks is really good. So I would encourage you to carry your Bibles, but it, if you have the electronics, that's awesome. But I, I would really encourage you to be studying this because I can't spend too much time each week reviewing everything. But I'm going to do a very quick review of the book of Esther. It's the book of the Bible in the Old Testament. It's only got about 10 chapters, but it's powerful. There's so much imagery in there. It's a unique book in the Bible because God is not mentioned once. Zero times is he mentioned. Even it's old, it's in the Old Testament. We know with the Jewish people how important Jerusalem was. Jerusalem's not mentioned once. Yet God is all over this book. As a matter of fact, I believe that if we look and study this book, we see that there's a type of Christ in this book, and it's Esther. And I think as you read it and study it, you would really be blessed. And I hope I can do it justice in bringing out some of those things. As you remember, when we looked at the book of Esther, we, I, last week I said it was, it, was, it was God was preparing first in the first couple of chapters. Last week I said, you know, there's this testing that comes, and then today we're eventually going to get into his intervention. And I made the comparison to each one of our own lives. There's always a season of preparation. And sometimes that season of preparation isn't all that much fun. But God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's preparing us for. He knows what you're going to be doing in a week or two weeks or a month or a year or ten years down the road. And he has a plan, and we're always in preparation. And when there is preparation, there will always be testing. Some of it by the Lord. He will put us through tests and trials to build our faith. But an awful lot comes from the enemy. He wants to put us through tests and trials, hoping we would abandon our faith and not fulfill our callings and our destinies. And sometimes those trials and tests that we run into are because we blew it and made mistakes along the way. Sin always has consequences. But God will even use that to prepare us. So in the case of Esther, we have seen so far incredible circumstances, incredible, I'll use this word, but I don't really mean it, coincidences. Over and over and over, things that have happened that no person, no man could have ordained. It was not the plans of man. God is providentially, he is involved in the life of his people, actively involved. He gives us free will, but he is still actively involved in your life every day. Every day. I hope you take some time, and I'll remind you a little later, I hope you take some time and just reflect on your own life once in a while and say, how did I get here? How did I get here? And look back and see the things that that God did that are mind-boggling, and you had no idea he was doing anything at that particular time. The events that happened over and over constantly affected the outcome of what was taking place in the story in the book of Esther. We may, you may remember, it's King Xerxes, king of Persia, this powerful empire, and his queen Vashti. And he had a great big party and a great big celebration and showing off all his wealth and riches and gold and everything else that he had. And then at the end of this long, long six-month party, he calls for Vashti, his living, beautiful treasure, to come and that he can parade her in front of all these nobles and his military people. And Vashti says, I'm not going to do that. No. The queen said no. And the, the king was so upset, he banished her from his presence, removed her from being queen, and it was an irreversible edict. When the king of Persia made a rule or a law, an edict, it was irreversible. So they went off, fought a war, he got beat by Greece, he came back and he was kind of thinking about his wife and forgetting it, forgetting what he had done and wishing he hadn't done it. And he's talking to his wise men and his nobles and they said a suggestion. You know what? We have 175 provinces, provinces that we rule over. 
there's some beautiful young virgins out there. Let's go out and find the most beautiful young virgins in all of Persia and bring them in. And one of them, one of them may be your next queen. Well, we see God's hand on things because there's this young gal named Esther who was adopted by Mordecai. That was now her father. And they were Jewish. Out of all these young virgins that came in, she had the favor of the people, the eunuchs, working with the virgins. And it would, when it was her turn to be called to go into the king, they got one night with the king. And they were never allowed to go back unless he asked for them by name. And if you didn't, you still remained in his harem, so to speak, as one of his concubines. So her life was changed forever, irregardless. She had favor with all of the people that, she, that were working with her. And when she was called to go into the king... She had favor with the king. So this young Jewish girl is all of a sudden finds herself queen in this Persian empire. And because of this, Mordecai, her father, was elevated into a position of a little bit of authority, a little bit of importance, and he sat at the king's gate, it says. And one day as he was sitting at the king's gate, he hears a plot to kill the king. And he tells Esther about it, Esther tells the king, they investigate and find out that it was true. And it's a very important, but sometimes it seems insignificant fact. It says that what Mordecai did was written down in the book of Chronicles of the king in his presence. And then it says this, he did not receive any reward or any honor for doing what he did. And all those things are going to play out in importance as we look a little bit further today. And at the end of chapter 2, there really was nothing serious happening, no critical or immediate conflict going on. And chapter 3 started out with a man named Haman, who was elevated to this position of authority in the Persian Empire, and he was second only to the king. And we learned last week that Haman goes all the way back in his lineage to a king of the Amalekites called Agag. And we also learned last week that Mordecai, this Jewish Mordecai, goes back in his lineage to King Saul of the Jewish people. And it turns out there's a relationship between King Saul and King Agag. King Saul was instructed by God to attack and wipe out the Amalekites, completely wipe them off the face of the earth because they'd been tormenting God's people. But he didn't do it. Saul did not obey. He conquered the Amalekites, but he kept the king alive. And he took a bunch of the silver and the gold and a lot of the rewards of war and kept them, which he wasn't supposed to do. And he was confronted by Samuel, who the prophet himself ended up taking a sword and cutting up Agag into pieces. And I tell you that to realize that there was this conflict between this man named Mordecai and this man named Haman, who went back generations. There was a bitterness between them. And this is where we are going to pick up this morning. In chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this. When Mordecai, well, one other thing, really important thing in the review. Mordecai and all of the Jewish people were put under a threat. Haman went to the king because Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. He wasn't going to bow to this guy. It wasn't a matter of you wouldn't worship him. It wasn't about worship. It was about honoring him. But Mordecai wouldn't do it because of this thing between Mordecai and Haman. So he went to the king, and he, and he said, you know, there's this group of people, and he was very vague, and they don't obey your rules. He lied. And he got him to say, what should we do with them? Well, let's kill them all. Let's wipe them out, these people. He didn't tell them who they were. He didn't tell them how many there were. He didn't tell them where they lived. Let's kill them all. And the king, of course, said, yeah, that sounds good to me. Go ahead. And that was all the Jewish people. And he did this the day before. They announced it the day before the the religious holiday of Passover when they celebrated their deliverance from Egypt. He told them that the very day before. And then they set the date 11 months out so they could live in fear for 11 months. And the king didn't even know who these people were. And the king didn't know because Mordecai had told Esther not to tell. But the king didn't know Mordecai and Esther were Jewish. So the king made an edict, and edicts are irreversible, that all the Jews could be wiped out on one day, 11 months after it was announced. They, could be, they were to be 
What were the three words? Killed, destroyed, and annihilated. In other words, let's be thorough. Get rid of them all. Chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict was ordered, and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther and the eunuchs, when Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathek, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to a tender, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathek went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa, which was the capital city of Persia, to show to Esther and explain to her and told him to urge her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception is this, is for the king to extend his golden scepter to him and then spare his life. But for 30 days, 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. And then, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai. Think about what's taking place. The people are in bitter mourning. It's been announced that this edict has been passed, and 11 months from now, every single Jew was to be destroyed, killed, slaughtered. Every single one. None were to live. And it was an edict that was irreversible. And the people are in mourning, especially Mordecai. You know, when they talk about sackcloth and ashes, this was one of the things they did when they were in great mourning, in this wailing. And Mordecai, can you imagine what was going on in Mordecai's head? Again, I'm just imagining, but you know what? This whole thing's his fault. This whole thing appears to be his fault. If he'd have just bowed to Haman, like the king told the people to do, just to honor him, honor his position, this wouldn't be happening. Mordecai is broken. And now he's about to put Esther's very, very life in danger. Think about Esther's situation. She is so isolated, she didn't even know about the edict. She heard that Mordecai, her father, was in sackcloth and ashes and wailing and in great grief out in the middle of the city. She didn't know why. So she sent clothing to put on him. Let's get him out of these sackcloths and ashes. I don't know what happened, but let's dress him up again. And, of course, he wouldn't do it. She had no idea what was going on. So Mordecai gives him a copy, an exact copy of the edict. And he tells the eunuch, take this to Esther so Esther's aware of what's going on. Let make sure that she knows. And then he does this. He orders her. Tell her this. Tell Esther this. This is what's going to happen. This is the edict the king has passed. You need to go into the king. And you need to beg him for mercy that we can save his people. Plead for your people. Look at her reply. Imagine yourself again. People don't know for sure how old Esther was. Some thought she may have been as young as 16 when she was taken in, so she could have been 21, 22, 25 by now, 28 maybe. She's still a young lady. And she knows what happened to Queen Vashti when she disobeyed the king. She got removed completely. And she's now the queen. And she knows that you can only go into the king if you're summoned to come into the king, even if you're the queen. You can only go in. 
And if you go in unsummoned, there's only one penalty. They kill you. Death. And then she finishes it off by saying, tell him I haven't even, I'm the queen, I'm his wife, but I haven't even been called into him for over 30 days. I haven't even seen him for 30 days. What's going on in her mind? I would guess, being she is human, she was probably fearful. She was probably confused. She might have even been asking, why me? I didn't ask to be queen. I was totally content living at home with Mordecai and my family. I didn't ask to be taken in and made part of this uh, umpteen concubines. I didn't, be, I didn't want to be asked to go in and sleep with this vicious, vile king. Why me? It would be natural. And now she's asked by her father, actually told by her father, to go in and risk her life. And then we read on, we see Mordecai's response to Esther, starting in verse 13. It says, he sent back this answer. Do not think, because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, your father's family, will all perish. And who knows? But you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Probably a verse that you may have heard paraphrased. Who knows? But for such a time as this, God's got you right where he has you. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you fast. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Notice when Mordecai responded, he first reminded her that her life was already in danger. You know, going into the king, yeah, your life's at risk, but guess what? 11 months from now, you're going to be a Jew just like we're all Jews, and you're going to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. And it's interesting that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of it really being Mordecai's fault, his faith is strong. Do you see what he said that would demonstrate his faith? He said, deliverance will come. It will come. If you don't respond, deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. In the midst of this mess, he knew that God was faithful to his people. So he says, your life's already at risk. In other words, if we'd paraphrase it, Esther, sweetheart, you've got nothing to lose. You're either going to die when you go in or you're going to die 11 months from now. And God's also going to raise up someone else to deliver us. So who knows, Esther, who knows, but that you are here for such a time as this. And she says, if I perish, I perish. God's plans really don't depend on human effort. He uses humans and the decisions that they make to carry out and accomplish his plans, his purposes. Now, we can hear that and think, well, what's the point then? No, it's not an excuse for you or I to do nothing. We are to be active. Esther is supposed to act. She is supposed to follow through. God has trained us. He's gifted us. He's given you certain talents. And who knows what he has you here for at this particular time. But I am convinced, because of the word of God, that he has a purpose and plan for every one of us. We're here for such a time as this. We might not recognize what that looks like yet. We might not recognize what it means. And we certainly don't know what it means five or ten years down the road. But God has a purpose. We're not here by accident. None of us. Really, when Mordecai is looking at this situation... He's probably saying something like, this has got to be God's hand at work. Nobody could have orchestrated this. Look where we are. Esther. Look where Esther is. 
Look where I'm at. All these things that had to fall into place just perfectly, from Vashti disobeying the king to being removed, from all these virgins being brought in, and the most beautiful one that could impress the king being chosen. It was Esther. Him sitting at the king's gate just happened to be there the day these two guys were plotting to assassinate the king, and he told Esther, who happened to be queen, who went and told the king, and it all was turned out to be true. All the, it just happened to be this way. God's hand was at work years before this took place. Preparation and testing. And notice Esther gives instructions as to what the people are supposed to do. She says, I want you to gather all the Jews in Susa, all the Jews in the city, the capital here, I want you to gather them all together, and I want you to fast and pray for me. I want you to fast for three days. And I'm going to be doing the same thing. Me and my maids are going to be doing the same thing. But you know what? She wasn't asking them to fast so she'd get the courage or the faith to do something. She's already decided. She has already decided. If I perish, I perish. I want you to fast. Pray while you're fasting. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going in. I'm going in. Her faith was there, but she knew prayer and fasting was a part of her faith. She was willing to sacrifice her life for the life of her people. Now, if we could just back away from that for a second, the story of Esther, and consider Esther the possibility that she's almost a type of Christ. Jesus. Jesus knew when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane what was coming. He understood the wrath of God that was going to come upon him on that cross. He understood the pain and the suffering that was going to take place. He understood all these things. He understood the horror of all of this. And yet, he was willing to sacrifice his life for God's people. He was willing to go to the cross for God's people, us. Esther was willing to walk into the king's throne room and hope, and hope that he would extend the golden scepter because if he didn't, she was going to die. God extends something to us, but it's not a golden scepter. It's the cross of Calvary. He extends the cross to us, saying that because of Jesus, his justice was met. Jesus was willing to lay down his life for his people, just like Esther was willing to lay down his life for his people. Why was Jesus willing to do that? Because he knew the faithfulness and the love of God. And he knew God would never let him down. Esther, if I perish... I perish. Sometimes, God's going to ask you and me, what are you willing to lay down? In our culture today, it doesn't look yet like it'll be your very life. But what are you willing to lay down? I mentioned Tim Daniels in the 810 Project that the children's money is going to. Tim was a successful businessman. They had the American dream. They were living in a nice big house out in suburban Twin Cities. God called him to North Minneapolis, to a totally black community where poverty and crime abounds. They go to sleep every night hearing gunshots because people are killing each other. Children, single families, women and children everywhere, hardly a man to be seen until after dark. He walked away from everything to the call of God. What is God going to ask you and I to lay down? I don't know. But how will we respond? Will we trust God? Will we believe that he is faithful to his word and his promises? God's plans will require us to lay things down. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing everything that was coming, he was even praying, Father, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup from me. Esther, I'm sure, was sitting there, holy smokes, Lord, why me? Nevertheless, if I perish, I perish. Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Every single one of us will have that same opportunity at many different times in our life. What is God asking you to do? It's not always what we want to do. There could be a lot of fear that comes with it. Oh, the enemy would like to bring fear. Who do we trust? The circumstances or God? 
We've looked at the preparations of chapters 1 and 2. We've looked at the testings of chapters 3 and 4. And now as we move into chapter 5, we begin to see the intervention of God. We begin to see in this particular story what God's been doing for a number of years to have everything in place. The stage is totally set for him to deliver his people. But boy, are there some drama to unfold yet as we go forward. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. Esther's asked him to fast for three days, and then it says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and she stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. I bet she was scared to death. When he saw the queen, Queen Esther, standing in the court, He was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to the half of the kingdom, and it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman, Haman, the one who has convinced the king to pass an edict, an irreversible edict, to kill every Jew in all of the kingdom. Together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, said the king, so we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared, so they were drinking wine. And the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given to you, and what is your request? even up to half the kingdom, and it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them, and then I will answer the king's question. She walked in, she faced her fears, trusting God's faithfulness, And she walked into the inner chamber of the king, and the king extended the gold scepter. She touched the tip of it, and the king says, what is it you want? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. It's all yours. And notice, Esther, notice the way it's written about the banquet. Would you come to the banquet that I have already prepared for you? It says at the end, the banquet that Esther had prepared. Man, we need to be prepared. When God calls you to do something, we may not know the outcome, but we need to prepare as if God is truly faithful. Be bold and advance. And he says, what's troubling you? And I think there could be real wisdom in this in any situation. Notice she didn't blurt out, that guy Haman wants to kill us all and I'm Jewish. No, she didn't do that. Matter of fact, I don't know if she she had planned to ask right away at this first banquet or if at the moment she kind of maybe thought, ah, boy, I think I'll invite him to another banquet. I don't know. But we do know the story. She did invite him to another banquet. She didn't ask for what she really wanted right away. She She asked him to come to another banquet. I believe Esther's plan was coming together, even in her mind, as the Holy Spirit, Old Testament, was moving on her. I believe that God gave her a plan. I believe that three days of fasting, God had given her a plan. Because there's such wisdom in the way she does all of this. Wisdom beyond an isolated queen, isolated away from the king, not involved in politics, not knowing anything. But she has this plan. And then we see in the next few verses... The the danger of pride. Haman, in the midst of this story now, Haman, can you imagine Haman? All right. The king is invited by the queen to a banquet, and of all the people in the kingdom, she invited me too. Aren't I something? It continues in verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Man alive, do the things of the world give us pleasure for a little while. For a little while. 
But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. All of a sudden, all that joy, all that pleasure, and all that pride is wiped away. But Haman restrained himself, and he went home. And he called together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And then Haman started bragging. He says he boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways that the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and all the officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the, queen, or the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me to come along with the king tomorrow. But all of this brings no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it, then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. This delighted Haman, and the gallows were built. Just a quick sidebar. The Persian Empire, there's no history whatsoever that they ever hung anybody. The gallows there is either one of probably one of two things. It's a cross for a crucifixion, or it's just a 75-foot pole sharpened at one end, the top. And somehow or other, the person to be punished is placed on the top of that and pulled by the legs down till the stake has got him held tight. 75 feet in the air, total public humiliation. A most violent, painful, horrible death you can ever imagine. Impaling him on the pole was similar to the crucifixion. It could take days for them to actually bleed out and die. And Haman, great idea, sweetheart. I'm all for it. His pride, all the things of the world that he had, would not satisfy him. One Jew named Mordecai, who wouldn't bow to him, just controlled his life. Most of us will find out that things of the world won't satisfy us either because it's never enough. There will always be that something that we need that we don't have. The emptiness of the things of the world is demonstrated so clearly here. And I believe there's a hunger for acceptance in all of us. That's why I believe... Fear of rejection is one of Satan's biggest tools that he uses against us because God has put in us a need for acceptance. But the reality is this. There's only one thing that fulfills that need for acceptance, and that's Jesus Christ. All the things of the world, we could have them, and there's still going to be a void and an emptiness if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior. And we see this demonstrated in Haman here. He had all this stuff he's bragging about, But yet one little Jewish man named Mordecai was ruining his life. He was obsessed by Mordecai. Just like we can become obsessed by things of the world if we don't guard our hearts. And it says he builds the gallows. However, our Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. As we look into chapter 6, we see God's grace manifesting in the life of Mordecai. That night the king couldn't sleep. Try to remember the little bit of reminders, the things we've talked about in the past as we read this, and look at how many little coincidences are falling into place. That night the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles the chronicles of the king, the record of his reign to be brought into him and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. It seemed so insignificant at the time, but it was written in the book. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? Because that was the tradition. If you did something for the king, he would honor you or reward you. What did he receive, the king asked? Nothing has been done for him. 
His attendants answered. And the king said, who's in the court? In other words, who's out in the court? Well, guess who happens to be in the court? Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had built for him. So his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. And the king is probably going, all right, my top guy. Bring him in, the king ordered. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? I could almost close my eyes and imagine Haman's chest just puffing up. Who the heck would he want to honor besides me? Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man that the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe that the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, and let, the, let them robe the man that the king delights to honor, and lead him on the horse through the city, street, city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man that the king delights to honor. Wow. I get to tell the king how to honor me, and I'm going to make it good. Notice, a sleepless night just happened to be. Get the book of the Chronicles. Let's read it to me. Oh, yeah, we happened to read the part where Mordecai discovered a plot against me. What did we do to reward him? Oh, nothing. I can't let that remain. Who's in the outer court? Haman. And why is he there? He came to ask the king, hey, I built this amazing 75-foot tall gallows, and this Mordecai, and now he's called a Jew, this Mordecai is an affront to me. Because I'm who I am, I want to hang him on that 75-foot post. That's why he's there. Oh, does God love to bring down the proud and give grace to the humble. The providence of God is truly at work. God is directly involved in his creation, and he's actively relating to the creation at all times. He is involved in this story from beginning to end. Remember Romans 8.28? It keeps coming back into my mind as I'm going through this story. That God works everything for good together. Let me rephrase that. God works everything together for good for those who love God and are called for his purposes. I've got to admit some ignorance here. Until this week, I didn't catch the way that was worded. He takes and works everything together. Everything together. Everything that's going on, he brings it all together. If I want to look at one, one individual thing, I can't figure out what in the world he's doing. I don't like it. If I isolate one event, one thing, and just don't look at the big picture, I don't know what's going on, and I don't like it. And God doesn't say hey, every particular thing. He says, I will work everything together for good, for those who believe. There's a lot of things in there when Mordecai and Esther are going through this. When they're happening, I don't think they were saying, oh, this is great, God, amen. And in your life and my life, I don't wake up, I know we give thanks in everything, right? Ooh, that one hurts. But there's some mornings I don't wake up and give him thanks for what's going on that day. And then when it happens, I certainly don't give him thanks. But I don't see how he's working everything together for good for those who believe. Putting it together for those who believe. When we see it that way, we begin to see God's wisdom and we begin to see his plan and we get to see actually his love being manifested even in spite of difficult circumstances. Let's go on and read verses 10 through 14 of chapter 6. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just what you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Holy something. If I'm Haman, what in the world just happened? 
I don't think I can breathe. My chest is now concave. For Mordecai, and I'm the guy going to lead him through the city in your robe, on your horse, with the crest on the head of the horse, and I'm going to be one hollering. I'm going to be the one yelling, this is what the king does for those he wants to honor. And I came to ask if I could put him on the end of a stick, 75 feet in the air. Do not neglect anything that you recommended, Haman. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai. (laughs) I love to picture that. Haman putting the robe on Mordecai. I hope Mordecai was humble. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, where he always went and sat by the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. You know what that head covered signifies? That's what you did with a dead person. His pride just got killed. He went home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And his advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, God will even allow pagans to prophesy. I believe they had no clue what they were saying, but listen to what they said. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. You are toast. It's not going to be good. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. This is the second banquet. Now she's going to share her request. And he's having a bad day. But I'm the only one in all the kingdom that's been invited to come and be here with the king. I'm going to just read chapter 7 quickly and tie it up for today. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will get given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, and it will be granted. The queen, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, here it is. Grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Picture the scene. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and he left his wine and he went out and sat in the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. But just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. That's not good. A Jewish tradition has it that Michael the archangel gave him a push at just the right time. I'm not saying that's true, but I sure would like it to be. Falling on the couch where Esther is reclining, the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. He's a dead man walking. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows, 75 feet high, stands right next door to Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. What an amazing turn of events. 
God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble, and his plans and purposes are carried out. Esther's task, her role in this, was absolutely heroic. Notice how her request is made. It's very personal. It's my life. And then she associates herself with God's chosen people as her people. She didn't make it about just her. It was a personal request to the king, who obviously has great favor for her. It's a personal request out of a personal relationship made, identifying herself with him and then with God's chosen people. We as Christians are identifying ourselves with a man who was crucified on a cross. We are identifying ourselves with a people who have been persecuted throughout history. And in many ways, we are tempted, a lot like Haman. We are taught in our culture to find our identity in stuff, material goods. Who are you? We automatically go to, what do we do? Well, I'm this. Want to see my house? Look at my big car. Check out my fancy clothes. Look at my Gucci bag. If we haven't got all... <laughs> sorry. Any Gucci's in here? I'm sorry. But we're trained. We're trained to think, just like Haman was trained to think in that culture. My identity is in who I ha- what I have. My position, my power, my authority. The problem we have so often is an identity crisis. Who are you? Here comes my one-string fiddle, right? Who are you? We are children of God. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are to have no fear in approaching the throne of God's grace. The May way has been opened. And though we are still exiles here on earth, like I said, our salvation has already taken place. That's who we are. I guarantee you, if we grab a hold of that truth, and that becomes our identity, your life will change. The doors that the enemy tries to open to come and torment you will be slammed and locked shut. You will be able to live and walk out the freedom that Christ died to give us. Our identity, who we are. God extended the cross to us. His justice was accomplished on the cross. And that's what makes who we are legal. We, and I know these just sound like words so often, but we are the recipients of God's favor. That's you. You are the recipient of his favor. You and I have been saved by the king of kings. No Xerxes, but by Jesus Christ himself. As you look through this story, look at the amazing chain of events in this story. And as I said earlier, everything that happened, happened for a reason at just the right time. And again, before I close, I would like to challenge you and encourage you to do this. Look back in your own lives. And what has all happened to get you here? I don't mean in this building necessarily, but get you to where you are in life. What things happened that you had no control of? What were some of the things that took place at the moment you thought this is the worst thing ever? And then when you got on the other side and saw how things came together, you stand in awe. Take a step back and see God's work in your own life in terms of your own conversion. What all had to take place for you or me to get saved? It may not be quite as dramatic a story as Esther's and the Jewish people, but boy, some of us have got amazing stories. All the things that had to happen had to take place in just the right time and in just the right place with just the right people. And here we are, born-again believers, children of God because of things that took place that we didn't sit down and write an eight-point plan to make sure it happened. 
God's providence at work. These are the things, when we do this, it should strengthen your faith and give you a greater hope no matter what you're going through. No matter what. And I'm the first to admit, man, there are times I am so lost in some of the things that I'm going through. And I know that happens to many of us. But that's when we need to step back and look at the big picture. Okay, God, what are you doing? I don't know what you're doing. But I trust you. Is our faith in the word of God and the faith in his character? Or is that in the circumstances of life? What's your identity? Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would speak by your Holy Spirit to each one of us. Continue to reveal yourself to us. But God, I pray that you would reveal who we are in your eyes. God, how valuable and how loved we are in your eyes. God, is the crown jewel of creation, yes, but is your sons and daughters that Jesus died for. Lord, I pray that our identity would become firmly rooted in who we are in Christ and because of what he's done. Lord, I pray that the lies of the enemy would be silenced in our minds and that we would stand on the truth. Lord, I pray for those that are going through some of that real times of testing even right now. God, I pray you just extend your grace to each one as they humble themselves before you. God, we just thank you for loving us so much. And I pray, God, as we leave this morning, you would go with us, go before us, Help us to see and hear the things that you're doing around us. Help us to be more aware, spiritually aware of what's going on. That we can truly be the hands and feet of Jesus. That we can walk into the greater and greater depths of the destiny that you have for us. And we ask all this that Jesus would be glorified. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.